Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that he found, if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And so he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias? And he said, Here I am, Lord. And so the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once. And he arose and was baptized. And so when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose? so that he might bring them bound to the chief priest. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. If you enjoy eating nuts, you're not alone. I, for one, go nuts over nuts. You know, some edible nuts come in their shells, peanuts and Walnuts and pistachios all come to mind, but not macadamia nuts. 
Macadamias are primarily grown in our 50th state of Hawaii. The nut itself is 80% oil, which accounts for its buttery texture. Its sweetness gives it a tropical taste. But you rarely see a macadamia nut in its shell. Why? Because it requires some serious muscle to extract a macadamia. You don't just peel off the shell with your fingers. No, it takes a nutcracker with 300 pounds of pressure per square inch to open a macadamia nut, which earns for the macadamia the notable title, the toughest nut to crack. And we could ascribe the same title to this man we find here in Acts chapter 9. First one reads, Then Saul. It is true that Jesus' resurrection was a life-changing event for many, many people followers and enemies alike. Think of the 11 disciples huddled in fear behind barricaded doors. When Jesus needed his men, they were nowhere to be found. In the garden, in the face of the police force that arrested Jesus, they scattered like pigeons on a city street. A boastful Peter had denied his Lord in front of a campfire girl. Though only John mustered enough courage to accompany the women to the place of execution, you can bet they all witnessed Jesus at a distance hanging on the cross. They saw him die, something they had all vowed that they would never let happen. The scripture says, Peter went out and wept bitterly. And he wasn't the only grown man who cried that day. And now they're worried that they might be next. And yet something happened to these men. For just a few weeks later, they're standing in the temple before the same powerful crowd who had arranged Jesus' execution. And they're preaching boldly that Jesus is Lord, that he has conquered death, that he has ascended to God, and that he is on the throne in heaven and will return to judge men everywhere. Something profound convinced the disciples of these truths. If they had not seen the living Lord with their own eyes, they would still be hiding in the shadows. But despite the threat to their own lives, their own welfare, it was his resurrection that became their motivation. There is a verse in Acts chapter 6 that if you're reading through too quickly, you can overlook. Verse 7 speaks of the life of the early church. It says, the word of God spread and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. The priests? The chief priests were the men who killed Jesus. And yet the empty tomb was such a compelling proof that it won over even the staunchest skeptics. Realize, to silence all this talk, to squelch this Jesus movement in its tracks, all his enemies had to do was produce a body, but they couldn't, for Jesus had risen. It was an infallible proof that even the priests couldn't sidestep. And this became the anthem of the first Christians. Men and women went out into a pagan world with nothing but faith and God's spirit and a message this man, Jesus, had overcome death and had ascended into the clouds and was now Lord of heaven and earth. 
You know, the Roman emperors, they claimed to be Lord. And they weren't looking to the clouds. They were backing up their claim with great armies. But these Christians stood strong in their faith. Against great odds, at enormous personal sacrifice, they carried their message to the ends of the earth. And after four centuries were in the books, Rome had fallen. And Christianity was the religion of the empire. One theologian sums it up. Whenever we go back to the key text for evidence of why the church persisted in such an improbable and dangerous belief, it is because Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead. Certainly, the resurrection of Jesus changed the lives of many, many people living in the first century A.D. But Rabbi Saul was not one of them, at least not at first. You see, Saul was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court. Many believed he was present at the trial of Jesus. Perhaps his lips also cried out, crucify him. At the time, Saul may have been new to Jerusalem and not yet a fixture in the priestly hierarchy. But in the three years since, all that had changed. You see, this Saul was a religious go-getter. He had climbed the ladder. He had worked himself into a position of ecclesiastical clout. In Acts chapter 7, at the trial of Stephen, we're told that those who witnessed against Stephen, they laid their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. Acts 8 verse 1 reads, Now Saul was consenting to his death. Implied is that Saul oversaw the trial and execution of the church's first martyr. And after Stephen's stoning, Saul was even more insistent to stamp out the Christians and the message they preached. For Saul, if Jesus was Lord, the temple religion that he had studied and pursued all his life was now in vain. He could never let that happen. His goal was to protect the status quo. And this is why we're told in verse 1, Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. The original language is even more vivid. It describes Saul as a rabid animal stalking its prey. Saul was so resistant to the message of Jesus, he was determined to wipe out all who declared and would proclaim it. In fact, his rage even went on the road. Verse 1 tells us he went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. In killing Stephen, he had hoped to stamp out Christianity. But Saul had only blown the head off the dandelion. He has now spread its seeds. Believers in Jerusalem have moved up the road to Damascus and started a church 140 miles now northeast. Notice thou though how Acts chapter 9 refers to Christianity. It's called the way. You see, Christianity isn't just a moral code or a system of beliefs or religious rites. It's a way of life. The resurrection meant new life for Jesus and new life for his followers. Different from the religion and the legalism and the ritualism on which Paul had been raised, Christianity was a new way of relating to God and people. That involved trust and love. What we're going to read about in Acts chapter 9 is Saul's conversion. 
But it began before his experience on the roadside. You see, the way had gotten under Saul's skin. He admired what he saw in these Christians. Their courage and their joy and their love and their sacrificial spirit. It was obvious to him they had the power of God. But how could they deny their traditions and trust solely in this Jesus? Stephen had reminded the Jews that their God was bigger than the temple traditions, that God had always done new things, that he was doing something new with Jesus. But this infuriated a conservative like Saul. He refused to let God be God and change the rules. He hated everything Christian. Today we would label Saul's attack on Christians and Christianity a hate crime. Several years ago, two Northeastern University professors did a study on hate crimes in America. They concluded 60% of the perpetrators are thrill seekers. Just insecure people trying to act macho. Another 35% are turf defenders. They throw rocks at a house when a family of another race moves into a neighborhood. They're just afraid of anything new or different. But 5% of the perpetrators have deliberately built a false theology to rationalize their prejudice. They think they're doing God a favor by perpetrating and, and attacking the group they hate. These folks are the most violent and the most lethal. And this describes Saul. Blaise Pascal once said, Men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from religious conviction. Saul was zealous for God, but his zeal was without knowledge. It's easy to hate what you don't understand, but that's about to change for Saul. For this angry rabbi is about to make a new and surprising acquaintance. Verse 3 tells us, As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. And then he fell to the ground. He hit the deck. Some artists depict Saul on the back of a horse. The bright light literally knocked him out of his saddle. Whether Saul was on horseback or on foot, he was definitely riding on a proverbial high horse. It was a long fall to the ground for a proud man like Saul. He was headed to Damascus to knock off the Christians. Instead, he's the one who now gets knocked off. Verse 4 tells us, And he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? We learn later that this voice was from Jesus. But notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, why are you persecuting my church? That's what he was doing. But no, he asks, why are you persecuting me? Realize to attack his church is to assault Jesus himself. Hey, you can't pick a fight with me. Or you can't pick a fight with my wife without actually picking a fight with me. You start picking on Kathy Adams, and I'm going to get riled up. And likewise, you can't hurt the bride of Christ without upsetting Jesus. He takes it very personally. Verse 5, and Saul said, Who are you, Lord? One of my favorite John Wayne movies, and I like John Wayne movies. One of my favorites is Big Jake. In the final scene, John Wayne or Big Jake, he wounds the bad guy. The guy's just about to breathe his last. When he looks up at John Wayne and he asks feebly, he says, 
Who are you? And that's when John Wayne answers, Jacob McCandles. The villain is surprised. He's shocked. He replies, I thought you was dead. And that's when Big Jake answers, not hardly. I love that. And that's how I hear this conversation in verse 5. Saul thought that Jesus was dead, but big Jesus now knocks Saul off his high horse. And he says, not hardly. And then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Jesus was a common name in the first century. That's why it was usually qualified or specified. Jesus of Nazareth. But here, Saul isn't stupid. He knows who this is. This is the Jesus he's had issue with. This is the Jesus he's been persecuting. And Jesus says to Saul, It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Goads were sharp pokers used to maneuver cattle. We would call them cattle prodders. Today, a cattle prodder is a pointed metal stick or even an electrically charged wand used to prod the cows. And it's a great analogy of the Holy Spirit's conviction. Hey, resist the Lord, and he'll keep poking you. He will. Under the surface of your life, below the boil of your anger and your outward hostility toward him, God will keep poking. He'll keep prodding. He'll keep getting your attention. He's relentless, you know. He lets you know your life is not right. That God has a claim on you. And he won't let you go. You see, Saul was trying to stamp out publicly the very thing that was haunting him privately. Oh, Stephen's joy, his peace in the throes of death, the glory of God that he radiated was everything in life Saul wanted. And yet Stephen had obtained it apart from Judaism. Stephen's Savior was a man the Jews had called a blasphemer. And yet Saul couldn't shake his testimony. The Holy Spirit keeps prodding, even on Easter. Usually we think of Christianity's most vocal critics and violent opponents as the hardest nuts to crack. And yet in reality they may be the closest to salvation. For if they didn't have any sense of God's conviction, they would be ambivalent. They would be apathetic. But like Saul, their resistance is their way of kicking against the goads. Verse 6 tells us Saul's reaction. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And here is proof of the genuineness of a man's conversion. The cry, what do you want me to do? You know, too many people start out their Christian experience with the demand, Lord, here's what I want you to do. But not Saul. It took only a few seconds with the risen Christ for Saul to realize that any relationship with Jesus, it's going to be the Lord who calls the shots and not us. He says, Lord, what do you want me to do? In the presence of the Savior, Saul melts. He breaks. A proud man now trembles. He has seen a light. Jesus is alive. He has met him. And if Jesus rose from the dead, it means he's Lord of life, even Saul's life. Are you fighting against God this morning? You can't win. It's best you surrender to him. And when Saul does, Jesus gives him his marching orders. 
Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. Once Saul gets into the city, he'll be told the next step. So often God's will comes to us that way, one step at a time. You don't get the second step until you've obeyed the first. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. God's revelation to Saul worked like a camera. As soon as the light hit the film, the shutter snapped closed. And it didn't reopen until the image had had time to develop. God blinded his new servant Saul. He gave him three days in the dark room so the memory of the light of Christ would be forever etched in his mind. And God is working on the other end of this this situation. For there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord had said in a vision, Ananias... And he said, Here I am, Lord. And so the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight. You know, Straight Street still exists in the modern city of Damascus. It's still the main thoroughfare that cuts east to west through the city center. He says, And on this street inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And here's another proof of a genuine conversion. When you meet Jesus, you'll want to talk. You will. You'll desire to pray. Well, the Lord continues his instructions to Ananias in verse 12. And in a vision, Saul has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man and how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. This is a madman, God. Do you really want me to go talk to him? Ananias is reluctant. And we can understand. I mean, this would be like God calling a Syrian Christian today to pray for the chief imam of ISIS. That's exactly how the church at the time perceived Saul. He was a terrorist. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. How interesting. It was God who chose Saul, not vice versa. God chose him by his grace. And from the very beginning, God had a mission in mind for this man Saul. He would preach to Gentiles and to kings and to Jews. You see, everything about Saul's life had prepared him for his God-appointed mission. Even while screaming and kicking against Christianity, God had his hand on Saul. The persecutor would eventually turn preacher. A Jewish rabbi would be used to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. God's purposes for Saul would prevail. And you see, I don't believe anything gets wasted in God's plan for us. Your education, your experiences, 
your years in the street or on the job, even what you felt at the time was unnecessary, perhaps even painful, somehow gets redeemed in God's amazing plan for our lives. I believe that. Saul was born a Jew, yet he was raised in a Gentile city. That meant he learned Hebrew and Greek. He was a Roman citizen and a Jewish rabbi. He was equally familiar with Greek culture and Roman law and Hebrew theology. He knew how to make tents with his hands. But academically, he had been schooled under the great rabbi Gamaliel. Saul could move easily among Jews and Gentiles, pagans and priests, princes and paupers, scholars and scrubbers. Saul was chosen and prepared in unusual ways. And the greatest irony was that the chief persecutor of Christians would be the most persecuted of Christians. Ananias tells Saul that before his life is over, he'll suffer much for Jesus' sake. God's hand was on Saul long before he realized who it was he would call Lord. Well, verse 17 tells us what happened when Ananias arrived. And he went his way and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, what a tender token of God's grace. And how encouraging for Saul to hear Ananias say, Brother Saul. His acceptance affirmed the Lord's forgiveness in his life. And this is what our fellowship is all about. This is why we get together with one another. For when we treat each other as brothers and sisters, our fellowship solidifies our identity in Christ. Ananias then tells him, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And no sooner had Ananias said it, we're told in verse 18, immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. Verse 19, so when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately he preached Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? Like a macadamia, the toughest nut had been cracked. The Lord Jesus had applied his 300 pounds of pressure per square inch and what was a hard, crusty, stony sinner was now a sweet and tasty saint. It's interesting. For the rest of his life, this is how Saul, who would later be renamed Paul, thought of himself. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, Paul records his testimony. He says, Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, a disrespectful man. But I obtained mercy. The grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. For this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Paul said, God set a precedent in choosing me. 
Literally, it was as if God had reached his hand down into a bowl of human nuts and deliberately picked out the one with the hardest shell, a macadamia no less. He cracked it open with his two fingers and he said out loud, if I can crack this nut, I can crack any nut. It reminds me of Joshua Blahi. Joshua Blahi was a former Liberian warlord who once ruled the streets of Monrovia. Blahi came to power in the Liberian Civil War. He recruited orphan children from the streets to serve in his army. It's estimated that Blahi is responsible for 20,000 deaths. His killing spree and tortures were horrendous. Blahi would go into battle naked. He wore nothing but tennis shoes and carried a machete. Thus his nickname, General Butt Naked. He would cut his prisoners in pieces and he would eat their heart out from their chest. His acts were demon-fueled. Prior to battle, he would offer to the local idols a child sacrifice to ensure his protection. But the story of General Butt Naked took an unexpected turn in April 1996. A group of pastors decided to take action against the terror in their city. They did all they knew to do. They started sharing the good news of Jesus. One of the pastors, Bishop John Kuhn Kuhn, was chosen to speak to the violent general. I'm sure he felt like Ananias. You want me to do what? Kuhn Kuhn went to his Moravian compound. He knocked on the door and he asked to speak to Blahi. During their first interview, the bishop says that the man spent the entire time cleaning and reassembling a submachine gun. Kun Kun's message, though, was simple. He said to the madman, all I wanted to tell you is that Jesus loves you and that he has a better plan for your life. Blah, he said nothing. After praying for General Butt Naked, the pastor left. Blah, he shot his bodyguard in the knees for allowing the pastor in to see him. But Bishop John Kun Kun, he returned again and again. And Joshua Blahi started talking. The bishop learned that the man was filled with fear. That Blahi believed that he was demon-possessed and he wanted a way out. And a way out was the one thing that the bishop could offer him. Together they prayed. And General Butt Naked was clothed in the righteousness of the risen Lord Jesus. Today, like Saul, Blahi has become a preacher of the gospel. He says if he's ever sentenced to prison or to death, he'll accept his punishment. In the meantime, he's returning to his victims and asking for forgiveness. I read of his conversion in a German magazine, Der Spiegel. It quotes one of his favorite verses, John 3, verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. The author adds, Blahi has found perhaps the only religion that can forgive him for committing murder thousands of times, forgive him completely, and still recognize the greatness of its God in this act of forgiveness. Christianity is the only religion that glories in God's greatness through his willingness to pardon. God's greatness and his grace 
makes God so amazing. The article ends with a quote from Kun Kun. God has the power to change anyone, even butt naked. Why does Christianity have this kind of power? Why is there no one beyond the reach of God's grace? It is because God's love is not found in a creed or in a ritual or in a set of rules, but in a person. A person who is alive and who still shines his light into dark places. We have a living Savior, and his name is Jesus. Recently, I taught a class at the Calvary Chapel Bible College in California, and I had a student named Muhammad. And I'm sure you can guess Muhammad was a former Muslim. A number of years ago, he immigrated from the Middle East to Southern California. But life in new surroundings didn't work out so well for Muhammad. He started using drugs and he became depressed. One day he decided to end his life. He was telling me the story. He said he drove to a bridge near the ocean. His plan was to drive over the guardrail and end it all. As he drove, he started crying out to God. He called on the God that he knew, Allah, and to the prophet Muhammad. But there was no answers. Finally, he heard another voice, a different voice that he said he had never heard before. It said, why don't you call on me to save you? He asked, who are you? The voice answered back, my name is Jesus. My friend Muhammad said that he was stunned. Never in a million years did he expect Jesus to speak to him. Somehow he turned his car around and he headed home. He said the next day when he awoke, things seemed different. The sky looked brighter. His head was clearer. He said that later that very day, he was walking across a parking lot when he noticed a fellow sitting on the tailgate of his pickup truck. The guy motioned for him to come over. Muhammad said that in his culture, when a man gets your attention, it's because he knows you. But this guy was a complete stranger. But he said to Muhammad, he said, I just felt God wanted me to tell you that Jesus Christ loves you and he cares about you. Muhammad was floored. Jesus was still talking to him? Later, the same guy called Muhammad and invited him to Calvary Chapel. Muhammad told the guy that he was a Muslim, that he couldn't go to a church. But the guy asked him, he said, well, will you meet me in the parking lot? Muhammad said for some strange reason he agreed. When he got there, though, he asked if this was one of those churches that believed that there was only one way to God, that Jesus is the only way. Well, the man answered him. He said, well, he said, that's what Jesus said. He told us he is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. Well, Muhammad got angry. He couldn't attend such a closed-minded church. And so he left. At the time, he was working a cash register at a store. And it was later that day that someone handed him a roll of bills. Muhammad was unfolding them. He was putting them in the drawer when he noticed on one of them there was an ichthus, you know, the symbol of the fish, the Christian symbol. And he said inside the ichthus was the word Jesus. And that's when Muhammad turned the bill over. And someone else had written on the front, John 14, verse 6, 
Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Muhammad said that was all the proof that he needed. It was then that he put his faith in Jesus Christ. The voice that spoke to him became his Savior. As did the voice that spoke to Paul. It became his Savior. And over the years, I have heard story after similar story. That's why today, when I share the gospel and I point folks to Jesus, I do so with confidence. For I know I am not selling pie in the sky or mental gymnastics or just mere pleasant thoughts. I know there is a risen Lord on the other end of the line who is prodding and who is poking and who is convicting and who is speaking in his own way, but in a way that is crystal clear. And he is powerful. Jesus conquered the grave. Now there is no foe he can't defeat. There is no sin he can't forgive. There is no vice he can't slay. And there is no heart he can't change. Jesus is alive. And his heart still beats with love for the man or woman, the boy or girl who has yet to soften and surrender to his will. Jesus loves to crack nuts. And often he picks the toughest nuts to crack. And if he's picking you today, please don't ignore him. I hope you'll answer, Lord, what would you have me to do?